Let's return to the 119th Psalm. Psalm 119. Last Sunday evening, we began a series of studies in Psalm 119. We won't go through every single verse in detail, but try to focus on a stanza or two every Sunday evening as uh, the Lord helps us and directs us. You recall how that I introduced this psalm and what I view as the proper way of seeing this psalm and the reason why we have it in Scripture, that this psalm, Psalm 119, is given to us as a divinely inspired spiritual journal. That it is not just a cyclical repeating of extolling the Word of God 176 times over and over again like it might appear, but that there's progress and movement and growth through the psalm. And that when we read this psalm, that we are tracing the steps of a man. He begins as a young man. We find that out in verse number 9. We just sang about it. He begins as a young man who's setting off on this road. And we're going to trace his experience And the three points that brought us to that conclusion were these three observations. First, that the psalm is about God's word, that every verse but seven uses one of those eight synonyms for scripture that we talked about last week. Two, that the psalm is a collection of prayers about scripture, that all but four out of 176 verses are prayer addressed to God. And so the man is praying about the word. And then third, in almost every verse, he mentions himself. And there are over 300 personal pronouns. And so when you have this then, where you have these prayers about the psalmist himself and the word of God, And you can see how this is a divinely inspired spiritual journal. And the approach we want to take to this psalm, the reason why we have this psalm, is that it might be a touchstone for the reality of our experience. So that we might see this example and measure the reality of our own experience by it, so that we are not under any false assumptions about what the Christian life is going to be like, but rather we have a divinely inspired benchmark. We have a touchstone for our own experience, and that's what we want to continually keep in front of our minds as we read, study, and talk about this psalm together. We looked at the opening stanza last Lord's Day evening. And we saw that in that stanza, the psalmist is on the outside looking in. He is observing other people, and he's noting their forward movement. These people that know multiplied blessing in their lives. And he can see why they know that blessing. It's because they walk in the law of the Lord. And he has this vision of what it will be like to live that kind of life and to walk that way. So he embraces that vision personally and passionately and comes in verse number five and says, Oh, that my ways were directed to keep thy statutes. 
He longs to walk with God like these other blessed people. And he has certain expectations of what that's going to be like and what it's going to look like. He he expects that, verse 6, he won't be brought to shame. He expects, verse 7, that he will live a life of praise unto God. So the stanza ends with his pledge, with his determination, with his resolution, that he will indeed go that way. He pledges, I will keep thy statutes. But it is not a proud, self-sufficient resolve to go in his own strength. He says at the end of the stanza, Oh, forsake me not utterly. You note that everything in that first stanza is directed toward the future. He's a man on the outside looking in, not yet on the path. But he wants to start. And so we titled that first stanza, Resolving to Walk the Blessed Way. Resolving to Walk the Blessed Way. Tonight I want us to look at the next two stanzas. The Baith stanza and the Gimel stanza. And I want to begin with an overview. And so I just want to read each stanza by itself and then just ask a couple questions. So we just kind of get an idea in our minds of what this is going to be about before then we get to the specifics. And so what we want to be thinking about when we enter verse 9, what makes this stanza different than the first stanza? Okay, what is the difference between the stanza we're about to read and what we saw last week? Verse 9, this is the word of God. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. With my whole heart have I sought thee. Oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. Thy word have I hid in mine heart, that I might not sin against thee. Blessed art thou, O Lord. Teach me thy statutes. With my lips have I declared all the judgments of thy mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of thy testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate in thy precepts and have respect unto thy ways. I will delight myself in in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. All right, so if this psalm is truly a spiritual journal, then I'm expecting to read how it has been initially going for this man after his pledge at the end of stanza number one. And that's exactly what we find. The main difference between stanza one and stanza two is that in stanza one, all the verbs were in the future. Then shall I, then will I, I will, I will. It was all future. But when you come to the second stanza, Most of the verbs are now in the past tense. Verse number 10, with my whole heart have I sought thee. Verse 11, thy word have I hid in mine heart. Verse number 13, my lips have declared the judgments of thy mouth. Verse 14, I have rejoiced in the way of thy testimonies. In the first stanza, he was on the outside looking in. But in this stanza, he has begun to advance down 
the road. Evidently, this stanza is written a short time after the first stanza. So this second stanza is a snapshot of the initial progress that he has made in his spiritual pilgrimage. He's writing from the standpoint of a person who has walked a little bit down the road himself. And we're seeing how it has initially gone for him. And how would you answer that? How is it going for him in this initial checkup after his pledge? Basically, how's it going for him? It's going pretty well, isn't it? It's going pretty well. Let's read the next stanza, verse 17. This is the word of God. Deal bountifully with thy servant that I may live and keep thy word. Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. I am a stranger in the earth. Hide not thy commandments from me. My soul breaketh for the longing that it hath unto thy judgments at all times. Thou hast rebuked the proud that are cursed, which do err from thy commandments. Remove from me reproach and contempt, for I have kept thy testimonies. Princes also did sit and speak against me, but thy servant did meditate in thy statutes. Thy testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. So the essence of that stanza is that it is distinctively prayer. Now the whole psalm is prayer. We already said that. All but four verses are directed to the Lord. But there's a difference in in, in the kind of praying in that stanza. I mean, there's a difference between verse number 10, with my whole heart have I sought thee. I mean, that's a prayer. It's directed to God. But there's a big difference between that and verse 18, open thou mine eyes. So this third stanza is recording for us the petitions that the psalmist is making continually as he is walking down this road. These are the specific petitions that he's offering regarding his walk with God. These are the things that he's praying for. And then when you get to the second half of that stanza, beginning in verse number 19, what he seems to be doing, and we'll look at this a little bit later on in more detail, what he seems to be doing there is making arguments to God for the granting of those initial petitions. He has some initial petitions that he makes at the beginning of the stanza. Deal bountifully with thy servant. Open my eyes. Don't hide your commandments from me. And then starting in verse number um, 19, 20, 21, now he's giving reasons. He's pleading with the Lord why the Lord should do that. He's making arguments for God granting him his request. So we're going to group these two stanzas together, and let's title these two stanzas this way. Initial successes along the way. That would summarize the two stanzas, right? These are his initial successes. He's, he's had a vision of the way, and he's embraced it personally and passionately, and he's pledged to go that way, God helping him. And now we hear him hearkening back on how it's been for him. A couple weeks, a couple months down the road. And we're seeing 
his initial successes along the way. What have been his habits of interacting with his Bible? Let's walk down through these two stanzas and let's note some of the habits that he has developed as he talks about them to the Lord. This ought to be really instructive to us and be a touchstone to us to measure the reality of our own experience by. So, like I said, we're not going to go through every single verse. We're going to bounce around and kind of hit the highlights in these two stanzas. I want to start off in verse number 10. This first fact about what he is doing with his Bible is that the primary thing he is after, and we must always remember this, is seeking God in Scripture. Seeking God. He seeks God in his word. You see in verse 10, With my whole heart have I sought thee. What is the object of this man's seeking and study? Is all, is all he's doing for the last couple months memorizing verses to help him with the sins for which he's struggling? Is that all he's doing? Is it just that? No. I'm sure he's doing that. But there's more to it than that, right? Is, is he looking to resolve current theological controversies? Is he, is he looking for all these abstractions and filling his head with all this knowledge and content? No, what he's really after is a knowledge of God. With my whole heart have I sought thee. He primarily is wholeheartedly seeking the Lord. We can so often be deceived on this point. It is very easy for us, it is very natural for us to assume that when we learn something new about Scripture, that we have therefore grown in grace. But that is not necessarily the case, is it? Growth in grace is not merely the accumulation of knowledge. It's not just finding out another fine point of biblical theology. We don't necessarily, we're not necessarily advancing in, in proportion to our growing knowledge. We do need to know the contents of this book. And we must always be committed to exacting theological preciseness. We don't want to disparage that at all. But let us never forget that all of that serves a greater purpose. The knowledge of God. Our relationship with the Lord. And I think that the key here to that is something that we're going to see over and over again in this psalm. It really is like the hallmark of this psalm. The key to interacting with Scripture in a way where you're not just filling your head with information, but you're seeking God with your whole heart in your 
interactions with the Bible, in your, in your Bible reading, the key here is what he's doing all through this journal. He's praying through his Bible reading. He's interactive with God as he is interacting with Scripture. You and I need to learn to stop and to talk to God as we are reading Scripture. It is when our Scripture reading turns into a conversation that we really are advancing in our knowledge of God. It is when we make that turn from it being just the Bible reading that we check off. It was a sign for the day in the piece of paper that we grabbed off the table in January. When it goes from that, just checking it off, to, no, as I'm reading, I'm interacting with the Lord. I'm telling him how this makes me feel. I'm thanking him for what he's saying to me. I'm asking him to kindle in me desires and emotions that I see expressed and extolled in this passage. I'm begging him to keep me from the sins and the vices that I'm seeing other people falling into in the narratives. The key to knowing God in your Bible reading is to talk to the Lord all the way through it. It's to make it interactive. And that's where a lot of people go wrong, I think. We check off our Bible reading schedule and we go on our way. And there's no wonder that we're left feeling dry and arid and untouched by those 20 minutes we just spent in the Word. Because we've only done 50%. We've had the intake but we haven't had the expression of heart back to the Lord and allowed that scripture to prompt in me requests and, and, and petitions back to the Lord. I'm going to cultivate that habit in your own devotional life. One of the easiest places to do this, I, I counsel um, young people about this often. This kind of thing comes up a lot when we're away at camp or something, and the seniors and I are together at the wilds, and inevitably I'll have several conversations with the, with the guys that kind of feel like they're in a rut. And, and one of the, I mean, and when we talk about this, this thing that we're talking about now, and I think the, 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 easiest, the, the best place to start in that is with the Psalms. Just take a psalm a day. And... Read a verse and then stop and then pray whatever comes to your mind about that verse. Just whatever that verse inspires in your own thinking. This is, I've read to you before on our, our January Bible reading um, challenges, um, the words of Robert Murray McShane, where he, he says, this is the way to know God. You take the first psalm, a psalm a day, and it says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. And you stop, and you say, O Lord, keep me from the way of the ungodly, the counsel of the ungodly. Right? You say, come to the next verse. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. O Lord, I pray that you would give me a delight in your word. I pray that you would give me that 
um, consciousness to meditate in your word today and this evening. Help me to keep it. Help me to remember it. Help me to chew on it through the day, right? Put people in my path today that will remind me of God's word. And whatever comes to your mind as you read that verse, just talk to God about it. The Psalms is the greatest place to start that habit. And then you can take that habit into other portions of Scripture as you grow in that. And so the psalmist, the first thing we see he's doing that we can use as a touchstone for our own walk with the Lord is that he is on a wholehearted quest to seek God in his Bible reading. That's the primary thing he's after, God. Second, verse number 11. We could all quote verse 11. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. What does that word hide? I know that we very often associate that verse with scripture memory. And that's not a bad thing. We're going to talk about that in a second here. But it's not really what the verse is about. In ancient times when there were no banks and there were no safes, what did you do with your valuables? You hid them. So to hide something is to value it. It's to treasure it. So here is his second, what's he doing with the scriptures? First, he's seeking God there. Second, he treasures scripture. He values scripture. Thy word have I treasured in my heart. You see, there's more going on here than rote memory. There is the assumption that we've stored up something that's precious. There's, memory is an assumption in here. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good application of this. But the teaching of the verse is that the way Scripture keeps me from sinning is not merely the rote memory of it but it is the treasuring of what I have learned from God in his word. It's the valuing of it. That's how scripture functions to keep us from sin. It's when I treasure and love and value what God says over what sin says that I choose God's promises over sin's lies. Thy word have I treasured in my heart, and that's what will keep me from sin. And the New Testament counterpart to this would be in Galatians chapter 6. Walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And walking in the Spirit, what is that? It's nothing different than letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, because the Holy Spirit works through the Word. That's how He works. So to walk in the Spirit is to be responsive and to be submitted to Scripture, to treasure his word, and it will keep you from sin. It will keep you from the lusts of the flesh. And this isn't the only time that he's going to talk about relishing God's word. You see it in verse number 14. I have rejoiced in the way of thy testimonies. You see it in verse number 13, how he's talked to other people about God's word. That's what we do when we delight in something and treasure something and value something and rejoice in something. We talk to other people about it. And so 
He's really following the way of Psalm 1, right? What does Psalm 1 say about the blessed man and how he listens to God's word? He delights in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. But we ought to also think about scripture memorization while we're in verse 11, because all of us can do better about incorporating that in our lives as well. We've grown in that area in the last year and a half or so together, and the emphasis that we've had um, in memorizing scripture together um, in half-year segments. Um, We just came out of a week where our young people and my Bible camp staff memorized hundreds and hundreds of verses from Psalms, and uh, we're so committed to that. We can do that more regularly. And remember, when we're discouraged about memorization and the difficulty of memorizing, remember that the benefit of memorizing Scripture is not necessarily in the achievement of saying it word for word. The benefit is in the attempt. When you attempt to be in Scripture, a certain passage, so often as to try to memorize it, you will find that that is stabilizing to your soul. And so, thy word have I hid. Certainly an application toward memory, primarily an application toward our valuing and treasuring of God's word. And we find him still resolving at the end of verses 15 and 16. He knows he has a long ways to go. And so he repeats his resolutions. You know, he's hiding his, God's word in his heart, but it's not an absolutely ideal picture. He's not at all satisfied with his own level of attainment. He's gotten a taste, but he hasn't arrived, and that's why we still find him resolving at the end of the stanza. And one of the things he's resolving about is in verse 15. Here's a third thing he's doing with God's word. He's seeking God in his word, and he's valuing, treasuring God's word. He's hiding it in his heart. And then the third thing, this is something he wants to do better in the future, and we can all be with him on this, is verse 15, doing better about meditation. I will meditate in thy precepts. If you look down at verse number 23, you do see he does, in time, find a degree of success in this. Verse 23, thy servant did meditate in thy statutes. In time of oppression and opposition, he did meditate on God's word. And that was an encouragement to him that that prayer was answered so quickly for him. Maybe we would be better then at praying about these things rather than just being down on on ourselves about these things and berating ourselves for our lack of meditation, maybe we just need to pray about it. Maybe we need to make a resolution before God about it. Maybe that's the way to grow in this. I will, Lord, meditate in thy precepts. I will, by grace, meditate in thy precepts. Help me to do better about that. What does it mean to meditate? What does that mean? Because that word has gotten kind of squishy in our culture. For a lot of people, the word meditation conjures up new age type stuff, you know, yoga or whatever else, right? So what does the word meditation really mean? And the best definition is a scriptural definition, right? And so how about Joshua 1.8? This book 
of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do all that is written therein. That's what meditation is. Observing to do all that is written therein. Putting God's word into practice. Bringing it to bear on my decisions and on my choices and on my thinking and on my actions and on my relationships and on what I listen to and who I listen to and how I dress. And I'm meditating on God's word. I'm observing to do all that is written therein. That's what it is to meditate, to be preoccupied with Scripture, to take heed to God's word, like he had said in verse number 9, taking heed thereto according to thy word. You and I ought to carry something with us out of our Bible reading. Do you carry something with you out of your Bible reading? You write something down on a 3 by 5 card or a sticky note. A phrase, a verse, a thought to take with you, a promise, a command, an attribute of God. Ideally, we ought to meditate in Scripture, engage with Scripture, until we have found something to meditate on, something that can preoccupy us the rest of the day. I will meditate in thy precepts. So he's seeking God. What's he doing with the Bible in these initial successes? He's seeking God there. He's treasuring Scripture. He's meditating and resolving to do better about meditating and to grow in that area. And then let's just take a note, finally, at the different things he's praying for as we work our way through here. And where we want to kind of end is in verse number 18. But let's go back to verse number 10. And let's just look at the different petitions he makes in these two stanzas. What is he praying for in these initial successes along the way? Verse 10. Oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. Because that's the most natural thing for our hearts to do. To wander from God's commandments. Now, I want us to note something here. When is it that we pray a prayer like that? It is only when we are fully following the Lord that we are concerned enough to pray, let me not wander from thy commandments. But when we are half-hearted in our walk with God, when we are backslidden, when we are careless, do we find ourselves praying a prayer like that? We don't, do we? This is a touchstone of real Christian experience. That, that impulse within. Oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. That is a mark of a heart that is in full pursuit of the Lord. He has this overriding concern that he would wander from God's commandments. And only a man with, who is right with God really has that deep concern. It's a touchstone. 
Daily progress is not going to be maintained by yesterday's graces. And we saw that in Sunday school this morning with Jehoshaphat. That great success, and then there he goes again, compromising with Ahab's son at the end of chapter 20. Humble and dependent prayer has to daily fetch a new supply of God's grace. And the more right we are with the Lord, the more this will be on our hearts. Let me not wander from thy commandments. A second petition he makes is in verse 12. So we're looking at the things he's praying for, specific petitions in these initial successes. And he prays, teach me thy statutes. That exact phrase is going to be repeated in verse number 64 and in verse number 68. Right? See it again. This is something constantly on this man's heart. He wants to be taught the statutes of God. He doesn't want to know how man's teaching, right? Man's teaching puffs up. Paul says knowledge puffeth up, right? So man's teaching puffs up, but God's teaching humbles. And man's teaching is going to fill my head with learning and knowledge, but God's teaching is going to make me holy. I want God to be my teacher. Teach me thy statutes. Statutes, those settled and unchanging statutes chiseled into stone. Statutes, teach them to me. In verse number 17, he prays, deal bountifully with thy servant. Deal bountifully with me. Are you sensible of your need to such a degree that it is not just going to take a little bit of grace to see you through. It's going to take a bounty. Oh, deal bountifully with me. Nothing short of a bountiful supply is going to meet my need. And praise God, there is grace abounding for the chief of sinners. Right, The great title of John Bunyan's autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. Deal bountifully with thy servant. I mentioned last week Charles Bridges and what a help that he has been in this psalm. Here's a little paragraph from Charles Bridges on, on that thought. Charles Bridges says, Okay, so deal bountifully with thy servant. This, this model petition. He says, see that you'd come not away empty. Remember who it is who pleads before the throne. Remember that the grace you need is in his hand. From eternity he knew your case. He laid your portion by, and he has kept it for the time of need, and now only waits for an empty vessel into which to pour his supply. He is ready to show you how infinitely his grace exceeds all your thoughts, all your prayers, all your desires, and all your praises. Deal bountifully with thy servant. And there is a throne of grace for us to come, for grace to help in our time of need. And it is a bountiful throne, full of bounteous grace. Deal bountifully with thy servant. And then we come to verse 18, another verse that we could all quote. And we see this fourth and most important request that he's making in his initial successes. 
Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things from thy law. He's praying for illumination. He's praying for light. Do you pray that God would open your eyes when you open a Bible? Or do you think, I've got a good mind, and I've had good training? Hmm. We need more childlike dependence in our walk with the Lord on light from God. Ask the Holy Spirit to illumine your Bible reading. It is simply not true that a person with adequate Bible training from a Christian college can all by himself come to true spiritual understanding of the Word of God without his eyes being opened by the Holy Spirit. No amount of language training or theological education or lifelong acquaintance with the facts of Scripture or experienced teaching and preaching, none of that can replace the need that we daily have for the illuminating grace of the Holy Spirit. We are desperate for God to open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from his law. Scripture makes clear that even believers have a need for their eyes to be opened. Even believers have spiritual scales that need to be removed. You think of the two men on the road to Emmaus, and that they could walk with the Lord all that time hearing from Jesus, about Jesus, and not not even perceive his presence until their eyes were opened. You remember how the Apostle Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 1 that those believers would experience the eyes of their understanding being enlightened. I'm praying that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened. Do you pray that God would open your eyes when you open a Bible? Unless in that moment of you opening your Bible and reading, unless in that moment the Holy Spirit opens your organ of spiritual perception, you will not be fed. You will not grow. And you have an example right here of that in the life of this young man. Psalm 119 and verse number 18, Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things from thy law. And as we stay in this third stanza here, the way the stanza ends, the way that I see it, is he's making arguments for God doing that. The rest of the stanza is kind of like uh, the, the sub-points of open my eyes, this prayer for illumination. It's going to give us more light. He doesn't just make the request. He urges God to do this on the basis of certain considerations. You look at his consideration in verse number 20. Why does he want God to open his eyes? 
And he can say this before God with a clear conscience and actually use it as an argument. Open my eyes, God, because my soul breaketh for the longing that it hath unto thy judgments at all times. Wow. This man is urging before the Lord the intensity of his longing for this. He says, my soul is crushed and it is longing for this. He's pleading the intensity of his longing. He says, Lord, it's soul crushing. And he wants God to take note of that. He wants God to say that this request for my eyes to be opened, this is no light, whimsical request that I have just made. The entirety of my being is in this thing. There is a yearning in my soul that you would open my eyes. In other words, he's at, he's, it's as if he's saying, God, if you extend mercy and you open the eyes of this soul, this is the kind of soul you're opening eyes for. A soul that's stretched out before you with longing that you would do this for me. I long for communion with the living God. So open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things from thy law. Here's another place where the Psalm 119 is a touchstone for our experience. And when Charles Bridges deals with this verse, he asks some very penetrating questions. Let me try to summarize what he says. He says, which experience more closely resembles your experience? And when he writes, he writes it in first person. Which experience most closely resembles my experience? Verse 20. Or what our Lord has to say for the church at Laodicea, that they are neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm. And before we answer that, let us consider that this fervor of verse number 20 is not a temporary rapture of emotion. It was constant. It was uniform. Look at the last three words of verse number 20. At all times. Do you and I know anything of this longing for communion with God? when our devotion must be exchanged for necessary employments? Do we seize moments throughout our day to catch a word from him and to fellowship with him? Is there any longing of our inner man after communion with the living God? If not, why? Is it not because we have neglected the throne of grace and become careless and indulge the spirit of the age and imbibed unbelief too much in our hearts and haven't fought hard enough against unbelief. He ends with this line, quote, at all events, let us beware of resting satisfied 
with the confession of our lukewarmness without pouring out our hearts before the Lord. In other words, as we measure our experience against verse number 20, it is not enough for us just to feel bad about how we don't measure up. Let's pour that out before God and say, Oh, Lord, why am I so lukewarm when this man, early in his Christian experience, early in his walk with the Lord, could truly confess that he, his soul, breaks for longing for God's judgments? Why do I know so little of that? Oh, Lord, undertake for me. Oh, Lord, break my heart and soul with longing for communion with you. That's the first way he pleads. Open my eyes because I'm stretched out before you with intense longing for this. And then the second way he pleads for illumination. Look at verse number 21. And notice that in the very first time in this psalm, he refers to people on the other path. He calls them the proud, people that err or wander from thy commandments. In verse number 22, he infers and he implies that there's people on this other path who reproach him and contempt and see him with contempt. He speaks of princes in verse number 23. He's talking all of a sudden for the very first time. He's going to do this a lot from here on out about people on the other path. And what he seems to be arguing in verses 21 through 24 is how the way that he has chosen to take this certain path. And he has made himself distinctive from those on the other path. And if you think about these verses, 21, 22, 23, 24, there's a close mirror between the way of Psalm 1. Remember, Psalm 1 talked about the counsel of the ungodly. That's what you and I are going to face when we're on this way. It's not other people and their swords and spears and chariots and horses. It's going to be other people and their words. Reproach. Contempt. Princes speaking against you. The counsel of the ungodly. And you remember the blessed way of the first psalm was delighting in the law of the Lord. And he says in verse number 24, Thy testimonies also are my delight. He said in Psalm Psalm 1, we were told that in his law doth he meditate day and night. And in verse number 23, he says, I'm doing that. Thy servant did meditate in thy statutes. It's like he's deliberately positioning himself before the Lord as a man who's chosen a certain path. He's chosen a certain way, the blessed way, the Psalm 1 way. He's urging, he's calling the Lord's attention to the fact that, that he doesn't belong to this world. Verse 20, or verse 19, I am a stranger in the earth. He's calling the Lord's attention to the fact that he has stepped out of the pack. He's calling the Lord's attention to the fact that he has, he has weathered an initial storm of persecution. Jesus did say, did he not, that there's a lot of people who receive God's word 
and there's a, there's a quick interaction with the word, and they seem to receive it joyfully, but then it withers under the heat of the sun, and that withering of the heat of the sun is because of the oppression and affliction and persecution that they face on account of the word. And this man's saying, listen, I, I faced the withering, scorching heat of the sun. Princes did speak against me, but I meditated in your word. I didn't wither, so I must be real. I, I must be on the right path. I've chosen this way, Lord, and I've asked for your grace. And he uses that as a reason for God to open his eyes. Open my eyes because of the intensity of the longing that I have with commun- for communion with you. And open my eyes because I have chosen this path in full trust and commitment to what you've said in your word. Open my eyes. And he says at the end there, verse number 24, Thy testimonies are my delight. And my counselors, you see the marginal note for my counselors? You have a Bible that has marginal notes as the alternate translation supplied by the translators. Thy testimonies also are my my delight and the men of my counsel. (laughs) The men, your testimonies are the men of my counsel. I'm not walking in the counsel of the ungodly. I'm walking, your testimonies are the men of my counsel. Have you ever done something like this third stanza in your own devotional life? Have you ever asked God to open the eyes of your understanding and here are the reasons why? Hear the reasons, because I long for fellowship with you. And because I've chosen this path, this path of trust, this path of obedience, the blessed way that you told me was the better way, let us remember that any lack of heart sincerity and any allowance of a spirit of self-dependence will result in God's light being cut off. We need to have that kind of sincerity. My soul breaketh for longing unto thy judgments. We need to have that kind of commitment. Thy testimonies are my delight and the men of my counsel. And so let me close then with Charles Bridges' conclusion from verse 24. He asks... What is the counsel of God that speaks directly to myself? What is it? If I am an awakened sinner, and of course that's a a category um, that, um, that ministers used in that day, probably ought to use more now, of someone who realizes their need of salvation, but um feels as if they have not yet been born again. They're an awakened sinner. If I'm an awakened sinner, what is the counsel of God to me that I should make the men of my counsel? Well, God's word warns me to turn from sin. It invites me to the Savior. It directs me to wait upon God. So make God's counsel the men of your counsel. If I am a professor... 
slumbering in a form of godliness. God's counsel shows me my real condition. It instructs me in, all the, in the all-sufficiency of Christ. It cautions me of the danger of hypocrisy. If I, through grace, am made a child of God, still do I need my Father's counsel to recover me from perpetual black backsliding, to excite me to increased watchfulness, and to strengthen my confidence in the fullness of his grace. Ever shall I have reason to bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. And every step of my way I would advance, glorifying my God and Father by confiding in his counsel unto the end. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. So as we've seen this snapshot of this young man's initial successes along the way, We've seen four things. He's on a wholehearted quest to seek God. What is he doing with his Bible? He's seeking God in his Bible. What is he doing with his Bible? He's treasuring it, hiding it in his heart. What is he doing with his Bible? He's meditating in it, and he's desirous of getting better at that and resolving to do better at that. And what is he doing with his Bible? He's praying certain petitions. Most notably, he is praying for divine illumination and urging specific arguments for God to open his eyes. Let's put this to use in our experience with God, in our walk with him. Let us walk the blessed way of the word by his grace. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we commit this to you now because we do not have the strength to follow through on what our inmost desires are about this. We do desire deeper fellowship with you, more consistency in our walk with you. We desire to treasure your word more, to seek you in scripture to meditate and be more preoccupied with your word, to be more humble and dependent on your illuminating power. But we do not have the wherewithal to produce this in ourselves. And so we cast ourselves on your mercy, and we pray that we would grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Open thou mine eyes that I might behold wondrous things from thy law. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.